In a world ruled by emotion, where reason is abandoned, God is forsaken, and history forgotten, two brave men will attempt to do the unthinkable. Use their brains. Armed with ancient wisdom, they will bring light into our modern world. This is the Sons of Antiquity Podcast. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Sons of Antiquity podcast. I am your host, Daniel, and I am joined in the studio by my co-host, Evan. How's it going? Today, we are covering the novels 1984 and Brave New World, two of the most famous dystopian novels of all time. And we're going to analyze the similarities and differences between the two works. Please note that this episode will contain spoilers for both books and uh, we'll have adult content. Please use prudence when listening with young people. Here's what we're going to cover on uh, the episode today. We will start with a brief a biography of George Orwell and Aldous Huxley. Then we'll go into a synopsis of 1984 first and follow that with a synopsis of Brave New World. What was the point of 1984? That's what we'll ask. Uh, what inspired it? And then we'll go into Brave New World. What was the point of that? What inspired that work? We'll look at the similarities and differences between the two worlds, the two dystopias created by uh, the authors. We'll give our opinions of the books and give you interesting details from each one. And then we will ask the big question, are we in danger of becoming either dystopia? And if so, which is more likely? Uh, Why we should care about these classics is what we'll discuss next. And then to wrap it up, how do we stop these dystopias from coming to fruition? And of course, as always, we will wrap up the show with this week's hot takes. So starting off, we'll do brief biographies of George Orwell and Aldous Huxley. George Orwell, who was born Eric Blair, was an English writer who lived from from 1903 to 1950. He was known for social critiques and opposing totalitarianism, despite being a democratic socialist. He grew up in British India and was a police officer in modern-day Burma before his 20th birthday. He got sick and went to England, where he explored the poorest parts of London to see what they went through. He became a teacher and wrote on the side. He went to Spain during the Spanish Civil War to fight against the nationalists on the Republican side. The Republican side was chaotic, with communists, anarchists, and socialists all fighting for control. The communists threatened Orwell, and he went back to England. He actually was shot, and he... He was he recovered. Oh, a really? Sniper, a sniper shot him. Where was he shot? Do you know? I think it grazed his neck. Ooh, that could have been bad. Could have been bad. Anyways, uh, he he went back to England and he worked for the British propaganda office during World World War Two. He wrote Animal Farm in 1945, and it resonated with the post-war atmosphere. He re- he wrote the book 1984 in 1949. Orwell was an atheist and a socialist yet outwardly appeared to be an Anglican and a lover of British traditions. He actually had an Anglican funeral, and he's buried in an Anglican graveyard. Oh, really? Yep. Okay, and Aldous Huxley was an English writer who lived from 1894 to 1963. He lived quite a bit longer (laughs) than Orwell did. Yeah. There was a lot less action in Huxley's life compared to Orwell's. At age 16, he contracted a disease which nearly blinded him and left him with extremely poor eyesight for all of his life. This crushed his hopes of becoming a doctor and forced him to focus on literature instead. Huxley wrote Brave New World in 1932. 
It was his fifth novel, and it was inspired in part by the works of H.G. Wells. He was a pacifist who embraced both science and Eastern religion, especially Hinduism. He also loved using psychedelics. <laughs> in fact, on his deathbed, he took one last trip of LSD. Just going, one last hit, man. Going out swinging. Yeah. However, he died on the same day that JFK was assassinated, so uh, his death was really eclipsed. Yeah, I'll say about, yeah. about that. That's crazy. And interesting enough, uh, C.S. Lewis also died on the same day. So both of their deaths were severely eclipsed yeah. by JFK's assassination. All right, so let's do a brief overview of the book 1984. The world is split between three massive single-party superstates who are constantly at war with each other. Oceana, which is one of them, their slogan was, War is peace, freedom is slavery, ignor- ignorance is strength. Winston Smith is a normal guy, a member of the Outer Party, who lives in Oceana. He works for the uh, Ministry of Truth, where he edits historical records to match current party policy. Smith thinks that his superior, O'Brien, is part of the resistance movement when they lock eyes at the daily Two Minutes Hate session. There's lots of things that go on here, but we'll, we'll talk about them later. Uh, though O'Brien is a member of the inner party, the upper echelon of Oceana society, Winston feels drawn to him. Winston then starts a relationship with Julia, who is forbidden by the state as, uh, which is forbidden by the state as they mandate artificial insemination or marriage. Winston and Julia both hate the state and eventually confess this to O'Brien. But O'Brien is a secret agent. Yeah. <laughs> he, hands, he hands Winston um, over to the police, but before he does that, he gives them the supposed book of the resistance movement written by a Mr. Emmanuel Goldstein. He's the evil traitor's enemy of all of the state. He has O'Brien is a member of the thought police, and both of them are arrested. Winston is starved and tortured for months, along with Julia, but they're separate. At the end, he is taken to room 101, where he is uh, re-educated. He betrays Julia by telling O'Brien to torture her instead. He's released after this and finds out that Julia did the same thing to him. They don't even love each other anymore. That just broke it. Yeah, they were just they were so... It's so well tortured, really. I mean, yeah. you could even describe it like that. Yeah, it's too painful. They just had to push it on to someone else. Uh, by the end, Winston finally loves Big Brother. Yep, he finally comes around. Yep. Now, Brave New World is a little different. Uh, the world of Brave New World is set in the year 2540, or as it's called in the novel, uh, the year 632 AF. Uh, instead of A.D. Uh, A.F. stands for after Ford, as in Henry Ford, uh, who was worshipped by the citizens of the world state for bringing uh, the modern commercialized world into being. We start the beginning of the novel with a tour of London's Hatchery and Conditioning Center, where the director describes to a crop of young students and, by extension, the reader, the state of this brave new world. There's natural, uh, well, I'm sorry, natural reproduction is completely banned. It's not allowed anymore. Humans are grown instead in test tubes, more or less cloned in big batches, and modified and conditioned to fit into a strict caste system. Alphas are at the top, all the way down to epsilons at the bottom. Later, the resident controller for Western Europe, one of the ten world controllers as they're called, uh, his name is Mustafa Mond, 
He joins them by chance and gives the students a synopsis of the events leading up to the start of the novel. Uh, chemical and biological warfare, advancements in eugenics and hypnotic processes, abolition of the family unit, development of a wonder drug called Soma. Think uh, ecstasy meets LSD, but with no bad side effects. Uh, the forgetting of history and the centralization of power over technology in the hands of the world state for the betterment of man. But wait, it, there are some side effects, right, if you do too much? Uh, well, it can kill you. I mean, yeah. too much of anything can kill you, I guess. Yeah, so, so if you over, you can overdose if you do an extreme amount. Yes, yes. But even one little, you know, one little bit that they take that's like the prescribed amount, mm-hmm. it just makes you have a happy trip. And uh, on in those small doses, yes, you're right. Uh, no side effects. But of course, as we'll see later on in the novel, um, take too much and uh, yeah, things will get rough for you. So then we meet a cast of characters. Bernard Marx, a rare, ugly alpha. He had a little bit of a genetic defect in the test tube. Uh, he has a distrust of the system big time. His friend Helmholtz, who is a writer, and Lenina, a very pneumatic young woman. We'll talk about uh, pneumatic young women later. Uh, Bernard's boss uh, is the director of Hatcheries, and he wants to exile Bernard for uh, being a rebel. So Bernard tries to decompress by taking a trip with Lenina to the Savage Reservation, like uh, a zoo for citizens to gawk at people living in third world conditions outside of the world state. There they meet Linda, who is a former citizen of the world state, and her son John, who was raised in the wild, so to speak. Bernard finds out that John's biological dad is the director of hatcheries, so he takes John and Linda back. When John meets the director and calls him dad, the shame of the taboo causes him to quit, saving Bernard's job. The guy is not around to fire him anymore. John becomes known as the savage, which actually took on a new meaning when I was rereading it. I was like, yeah, that is a pretty savage move there, Uh, just walking up saying, hey, dad, and getting the guy fired. Uh, But then um, it gets Bernard some secondhand popularity. Uh, That soon fades, and Bernard becomes jealous of John's new friendship with Helmholtz. Meanwhile, Linda, who is fat and ugly, just gets high on Soma all day and night until she dies. The savage John runs to her bedside, cries over her death, and when some little kids laugh at him for showing negative emotion and familial love, things that are illegal in the world state or just not around, he is mortified by their lack of morals and begins to (laughs) hate the brave new world for its obsession with pleasure-seeking, promiscuous sex, superficiality, lack of real connection, and unrestricted hedonism. Now, those kids were in the hospital for a reason, right? Uh, They were taking a tour of some kind. I can't remember the exact reason why they were there. I think they're there to make them desensitized to death. They, like, just show them dying people, and they're like, this is cool. Yeah, that that makes sense. I I think I remember that. Uh, The world controller Mustafa Mond hears about all of this, and he exiles Hemholtz and Bernard to an island, Uh, with other rebellious alpha-type citizens. John the Savage is forced to stay. Ultimately, the culture shock is too much for the Savage to take, and he hides away in a tower. However, he is stalked like a celebrity, and in a fit of rage, he brawls with the vapid citizens that flock to see him, who only laugh and cheer and fornicate as he beats them senseless. Finally, the Savage hangs himself to escape the the brave new world. uh, Wasn't he given the Soma, too? Uh, He might have but I don't think he liked it or he refused it. I, d- I definitely think they um, okay. pushed it on him, I think, at one point. Okay. Oh, you're talking about the Savage? Yeah, I I don't know. I I read it a little bit longer ago than you did, but I thought that they like just threw like a Soma cloud and got him on it. That does happen because there is a riot that, that occurs at one point, and <laughs> Bernard and Helmholtz kind of get wrapped up in it because I think the Savage started it. 
or it happened around him. And so, yeah, they have to spray a cloud of, of Soma to make everybody kind of happy. But, okay. of course, that's, you know, John yeah. didn't really like it. Yeah. All right. So now we can examine what was the point of the book 1984 and what inspired it. Orwell based 1984 on Stalinism. However, it went beyond a simple direct analogy uh, to the Soviet Union. Nationalism is a huge theme in 1984, manifested in both an intense love of Big Brother and a burning hatred of Emanuel Goldstein. It is not a stretch to say that Goldstein was Jewish and Big Brother could be anti-Semitic. I saw that all over the place for the analyses, by the way. I didn't make that up. Oh, yeah. 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 Orwell feared governments that obsessively scapegoated groups of people, whether they be the bourgeoisie or the Jews. The state in 1984 was a jealous, quote, God. It strove to eliminate all competition of love. Children were encouraged to report their parents to the thought police. Sex was only for procreation and not for joy nor relationship. Another chilling feature of the world of 1984 is the censorship and surveillance. There is no such thing as a free press, and all communication was read before reaching its recipient. Winston's job, ironically, since he works for the Ministry of Truth, is to censor history itself by removing history that goes against the current narrative, which changes all the time. TVs were required in all middle and upper class residences, which watched the people and blared propaganda constantly. Privacy was considered a danger to the state. Quote, what do you have to hide? I'll just say one thing on that. Democracy dies in darkness. Just want to put that out there. Thank you. <laughs> there, there is a funny scene in in 1984 where, well, it's not funny. It's kind of sad. But it's, <laughs> yeah, it's hard to say that anything it, in that book is funny. <laughs> but it's uh when when Winston is in room 101 and he has to agree that two plus two equals five. Yeah. Yeah. That's just kind of a fun or a little story from it. But. Yeah, because it's it's so obvious, you know. No one would really disagree with that. But in order for him to be completely broken, Ryan had to make him not only believe it, but love believing that two and two was whatever the party wanted, be it yeah. five, six, three, whatever. Yep. Yeah, it is a uh, that's a tough part to read for sure. Let's talk about Brave New World, though. Uh, the point of Brave New World was to parody the optimistic fantasies and utopian visions of previous generations and take them to a pessimistic extreme. Huxley wanted to highlight the dangers of technology and show how tyranny can be just as effectively, maybe even more effectively, implemented through reward rather than punishment. With Soma, television, porn, sex, fun and games, it's all dirt cheap. Forcing people to love servitude is hard. But distracting people from their servitude is easy, a point which Huxley felt wasn't addressed enough and wanted to address it through this novel. Henry Ford is such a highly regarded figure in Brave New World because Ford represented the industrialization and commercialization of humanity itself. And because he once famously said, history is bunk, and that same phrase is echoed in the novel. Uh, Hence, the vocabulary, culture, and day-to-day life of the world state citizens takes cues from Ford's vision of the future. Uh, a future of ease and luxury brought to you by the inventions of big business. Characters use phrases like, for Ford's sake, to describe <laughs> high-ranking officials. Uh, they say, his Fordship. Sexually attractive people are referred to as being pneumatic. What does that uh, normally mean? Pneumatic, I mean, it's just uh, air-powered. Oh. So in and out, you know, which that's what it reminded me of was the the old in and out from uh, A Clockwork Orange, which is <laughs> another interesting dy- dystopia for uh, a much later date. Um 
even the emotionally charged movies uh, that they go to called the feelies, they ha- hardly have any plot. And uh, that can be a little bit tied back to Ford, who would advertise his products in newsreels before films. Brave New World tries to warn us uh, how easily we can surrender liberty in the pursuit of pleasure, how easily we can allow society to be restructured, turning us into cogs and sprockets in a long conveyor belt while we are distracted by flashing images, catchy slogans, mindless entertainment, addictive chemicals, and sex, sex, sex. The similarities uh, and differences between the two worlds are numerous. Uh, Let's dive into that, starting with the similarities. Uh, Both worlds have a powerful state which keeps people in a a state of subjection. Uh, They have one central person running everything. In 1984, he's Big Brother. And in Brave New World, it's Mustafa Mond. Uh, Both have massive propaganda uh, pushed on them from a young age. And both rely on psychological manipulation to correct deviance. In 1984, obviously with things like Room 101, that is a a reactive um, measure. When they see someone has deviated, like Winston, they have to use psychological manipulation to get them in line. And in Brave New World, it's proactive. They do it with the brainwashing at the beginning uh, of the life cycle, using hypnosis and things like that. The differences, though, are uh, just as interesting. In 1984... uh, there is a massive intrusion uh, and violent state, or I'm sorry, an intrusive violent state, which controls every aspect of life. Brave New World has a much more subtle state, which gets people to love their condition uh, through sedation and pleasure. 1984 uh, does not believe in having sex for fun at all, whereas in Brave New World, it puts recreational sex as uh, one of its pillars of its society. In 1984, a society needed a strong hand to keep everyone in line because misery was rampant. They didn't want people to rebel at all. Uh, the Brave New World Society was affluent and designed to make everyone superficially happy and thus did not need as much state exertion. Uh, either pain and pleasure can be used to achieve servitude. In 1984, it is the stick, and in Brave New World, it is the carrot. Okay, so what about um, our opinions of the book and interesting details from each? Uh, I would say 1984 is fairly unrealistic and unsustainable, considering how much effort it took to change one man's mind. Um, A miserable populace tends to rebel, given enough time. However, Brave New World is scarier because the people legitimately enjoy their lives. Both books uh, are incredible and worth reading, for sure. My only critique is that the Goldstein treatise in 1984 is boring and can be skipped. It is a little bit. I guess it was sort of... um, It was his way to get... Orwell's way to get his own opinion into the book. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Like, this is how the world state will come to be. And it's like, oh, it's great. Just be socialist, but don't be... Don't be totalitarian about it. Yeah, that yeah. that is a bit hypocritical because, like you said, he is a socialist, right? Or he was. Yeah, yeah, his his life was just a big hypocrisy. Yeah, a little bit. Let's let's talk just slightly more on this, though. I, there was something uh, when you were talking there a minute ago that made me think of um, how much effort it took to change one man's mind. Until you said it just then, I didn't really think about it. I mean, I guess I knew, like, reading it, like, wow, this is a lot of work, but I never really thought of it in that simple a context. I mean, that is a ton of work by the Thought Police, by mm. O'Brien. Yeah. They had to manufacture this this book, this fake Goldstein book, yeah. and give it to him. And all of that, and then all the months of torture, just to change his mind. Yeah. And at the end, Winston, well, O'Brien even admits to Winston that 
they're still going to kill him. One day. One day they'll kill him, but they wanted to have his mind be perfect when they kill him. And I <laughs> it just doesn't make much sense. It, it really doesn't. I know I know it's like some parallels to Soviet Union and North Korea, but I mean, you can't have that last for too long. We'll, we'll get to that, though. Yeah, yeah, we'll, we'll get to that. Uh, I'd like to give you some quotes from the authors about each other's work because they were each fans of the other's work and they, they read it and they wrote to each other. So Orwell at one point said, here, uh, he's saying this about Brave New World. Here, the hedonistic principle is pushed to its utmost. The whole world has turned into a Riviera hotel. But though Brave New World was a brilliant caricature of the present, the present of 1930, it probably casts no light on the future. No society of that kind would last more than a couple generations because a ruling class that thought principally of a good time would soon lose its vitality. A ruling class has got to have a strict morality, a quasi-religious belief in itself, a mystique. I thought that was a really interesting quote because if you look back at every major society throughout history, every major, uh, I guess you could call it tyranny, um, major empire, whatever, there is a mystique to them. There is a quasi-religious belief or even an outright stated religious yeah. belief in them, like the divine right of kings or the, 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 the pharaoh being in touch with the gods or what have you. I mean, even look at uh, Plato's Republic, the, the noble lie about the ruling class. Tell us. Tell us what this noble lie is. The noble lie that, like, you tell these rulers that they're, like, made of gold or something and that it's, like, their destiny to rule virtuously or something. Okay, yeah, yeah. He he, maybe understood that that was a principle that was necessary to give yep. them legitimacy. Yeah, I, and I, I do kind of agree with Orwell that, that the mystique part of it, it does have to factor in. Now, Huxley, uh, writing about 1984, said this, The philosophy of the ruling minority in 1984 is a sadism which has been carried to its logical conclusion by going beyond sex and denying it. Whether in actual fact the policy of the boot on the face can go on indefinitely seems doubtful. My own belief is that the ruling oligarchy will find less arduous and wasteful ways of governing and of satisfying its lust for power. And these ways will resemble those which I have described in Brave New World. So they each defended their own worlds. You know, yeah, way. yeah. Hey, I loved your book, but mine was better. Yeah. Yeah. Which is why we're still having this debate today, you yeah. know, I think. Um, an interesting factoid about both authors, uh, Huxley taught George Orwell's French class at Eton College in Berkshire, uh, where Orwell allegedly chastised his classmates for taking advantage of Huxley's poor eyesight by playing pranks on him. I guess you could say he was a Huxley fan from the beginning. Uh, the party in 1984 uh, exists only if every inner party member and thought policeman acts with the same insane zeal as O'Brien. And that's like my, been my number one point from the very beginning, first time I've read this book in, I guess it was eighth grade, I thought, you know, the only way for this to work is if everything, like the whole house of cards is set up perfectly. And that just seems very unlikely to me. So in, in my view, that was a little bit um, outside the scope of reality. A random chance will also uh, always destroy even the most carefully built system. And the proles are an aspect that we didn't really cover. So if you're unfamiliar with the book, the proles were like the, the, the dumb masses. The proletariat. Proletariat. And they're poor and they're just liquored up all the time. And they're kind of allowed to do what they want because they have no 
ambitions. They have no education. They really have nothing, no means of rebellion, even though they have numbers on their side. If they wanted to arm up, they could overthrow the whole system. And Winston acknowledges that, but they never will because the thought police make sure that they are propagandized just like everyone else and they're kept full of drink and yeah. kept poor and uneducated. Yeah, but the proles don't even have to have state TVs in their apartments. That's true. So that's true. Yeah, that's another part. They don't really control the proles enough to to keep them from being angry because they're miserable, you know? Yeah. They would be likely to rebel, like you said. Uh, yeah, I think so. Um, O'Brien's underestimation of them, uh, that proves that. He thinks the proles are just, you know, losers. Uh, most thought police resources would be dedicated to the inner and outer party. So how could you afford to patrol the remaining 85% of the population, the proletariat? Uh, why would you if you thought they were so dumb anyway? And how did the party evolve? That's a big question I had was... Uh, it must have been pretty flawed in the beginning, progressing towards this perfect tyranny. Couldn't uh, – I mean, isn't it possible that it would have failed before then? I think it couldn't have reached the point that we see. Uh, too many opportunities for guys like Goldstein or Aronson, Jones, Rutherford, other people who were uh, rebellious and were punished for their rebellion. Uh, too many opportunities for them to successfully overthrow the leadership. Also, there's no guarantee that the three super states, Oceania and the other ones, East Asia, Eurasia – would behave themselves or adopt identical political philosophies, uh, perfectly executed, by the way, in all three areas. Come on, man. Yeah, uh, there's yeah. lots of theories that I ran into uh, about about the state of their dystopia. Yeah. Like one of them is that the, the countries just do war against each other, like to consume their own resources and to keep the people nationalistic. Yeah, that's something I guess in the Goldstein manual he yeah. says like they do that because they have excess resources. They have to keep people poor. What do you do with the excess resources? You spend it on war. Yeah. Also, that Goldstein isn't even a real person. Like, he oh no, yeah, he's totally fake. So yeah. it was Big Brother, you know. Uh, Big Brother was probably maybe he was one person at one time, but you know you can't just go changing your your lead guy. You have to keep him the same, even if he's totally fake, you know, um, for consistency. Uh, the personal rocket ships is one thing that's a problem with uh, Brave New World. Even by 2500, I don't think we'll have personal rocket ships. And the island of misfit alphas uh, would totally rebel and use their knowledge and their pizzazz and their genetic advancements to destroy the world state system. Huxley should have had Bernard and Helmholtz be executed at the end. That would have made them a non-threat. And that's my opinion. That, those are my critiques of it's, the books. It's kind of nice, though, at the end that he just sends them off to be with other cool people. Yeah, I liked it. It might not be realistic for maintaining order, but I, I personally wanted them to have a happy ending. Mm -hmm. Okay, are we in danger of becoming either dystopia? If so, which is more likely? This is our takes. Um, as I said before, 1984-style dystopia is unlikely to last a long time. It can, of course, come into being. We've seen it happen. Yeah. We saw that, that the Soviet Union lasted um, around 70 years of this torment. At first it was really bad and then like as we got in the seventies, eighties, it was it was kind of liberalizing. Yeah, it eased up. It had yeah. to to survive and it still died. Mm -hmm. Um Cuba is slowly becoming less communist in order to survive as well. They have to, you know, put food on the table. Communism doesn't help with that. Nor <laughs> North Korea is the only communist totalitarian state remaining. And considering its people have been starving for generations, it'll hopefully go to dustbin of history soon, and we can hope for a good ending there. But we can. Who knows? One thing we can say, though, is that they have zero incidents of the unknown virus of unknown origin. 
That's how perfect their society is. That's just so perfect that they have kept it at bay. Are you talking about? <laughs> I'm talking about North Korea. Are you talking about COVID? I'm talking about yeah, yeah. I'm 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 talking well, probably about probably because nobody goes there. Like nobody wants to enter. Well, the that's country. true. Yeah, there'd be no way for it to spread because no one's going to go in there. <laughs> yeah. Um. Yeah. Anyways. Uh, <laughs> we shouldn't I, be laughing at this yeah. because there are people starving over there. I'm just thinking of Little Rocket Man. You know? Little Rocket Man. Maybe he's got one of those Brave New World rockets. Yeah. Maybe. <laughs> okay. I, I see Brave New World as more likely. Much of Huxley's futuristic technologies are more realistic than they were back in 1932. And it's crazy that he was predicting this in the 30s. Yes. Um, we have in vitro fertilization or IVF. Uh, which allows eggs to be fertilized outside of the womb. Scientists are working on making human cloning a reality. It is only a matter of time before professionals will be able to simulate a womb and grow a healthy baby purely in a test tube until it's uh, fully ready, fully mature. A related danger is the widespread availability of hardcore pornography, which we see today. Like the children in Brave New World, we are encouraged to have sex with each other. Um... Our children are exposed to porn uh, when they are 8 to 11 years old on average in this country. I did some research to verify that. Yeah. And lots of children get it when they're like 6, which is sick. Um, yeah, many see it when they're very young. Yeah, it's just so many screens everywhere. Yep. You know? What effect is this having on how we view other people in the opposite sex? Are they objects or are they, are they people with dignity? A good question. Uh, in my opinion, uh, a lot of the things we see in 1984 and Brave New World are are coming true. Uh, maybe not exactly the way they're painted, but there are definitely some similarities to our own world. That NSA and FBI wiretapping, spying—I mean, you know that they're they're listening. The Patriot Act uh, was a step towards that, towards a surveillance state. Explain it exists. that. Uh, well, it was sort of a a pretty loose license on being able to listen in on people if they're suspected of being connected with terrorism. You know, so you don't uh, need a warrant? Uh, in some cases, well, we can go back and talk about the FISA courts, you know, and how in order to get a, like a FISA warrant, you go through that. And it, it kind of allows you to circumvent. It's a, it's like a secret court. And it, it allows you to circumvent the normal ways in which you would get a warrant in order to wiretap somebody and you run the risk of uh, unmasking and things like that. So, I mean, you're going to be listening on, on conversations where your target is talking to someone who is completely unrelated. But, of course, it's a conversation, so you can't just clip out, you know, the person who's innocent. So that is documented. What they've said is documented, even though they aren't the intended target. So that information exists. It's, it's on some document somewhere. And, you know, if it leaks, then that information's out. So uh, the Patriot Act was a, a move well, maybe well-intentioned, you know, trying to stop terrorism, it inadvertently has violated the rights of many American citizens and continues to uh, till this day uh, with the surveillance state at large, especially in the UK with their CCTV systems. They have cameras everywhere. So Orwell, I think, got that right. And uh, the surveillance state's not going anywhere. Social media tech also allows for easy deletion of speech and replacement of speech. Uh, and AI-controlled Google searches redirect information requests uh, in searches. That was exposed by Project Veritas like a year and a half ago. Um, 
Soma hasn't been created yet, but as Robert McNeil observes, television is the Soma of Huxley's Brave New World. Amen. Yeah. If you want uh, more proof that Huxley was onto something, go read Amusing Ourselves to Death by Neil Postman. That's where I got that Robert McNeil quote. Great book. Yep, it is. Uh, Huxley's vision is, in my opinion, more accurate in the current year because millennials and Gen Z don't know their history. They are pretty apathetic. They don't read. Uh, and they are addicted to their phones and social media and binging television. They don't go to church as often, and they, they take drugs. They're bringing drugs. They're rapists. <laughs> yep. <laughs> uh, however, uh, in all seriousness, depression and anxiety rates are up. And um, if you want to have a dystopia that works for you, uh, it relies on happiness. In both cases, in both novels, the dystopia relies on happiness. Uh, happiness in spite of your terrible conditions in 1984 or happiness from all the drugs and sex you're having in Brave New World. Neither of those realities will come true unless the people, you know, mass happiness is mandated or created. Mic drop. (laughs) (laughs) So why should we care about these classics? Dystopian fiction stories, when done right, are like the Grimm Brothers fairy tales, but for adults. They teach us valuable lessons. And it's important to consider the darker side of human nature, especially in a world like ours of pleasurable distraction. The stories themselves are objectively well-constructed. They're gripping. And uh, even without the political and philosophical elements, they're just a good read. Uh, They're part of the Western literary tradition, the best tradition, in our opinion, on the Sons of Antiquity podcast. And they remind us that no two people agree on everything, even giants like Huxley and Orwell. Yeah, even wise uh, men like them didn't necessarily buy into the other one's uh, view. And it also reminds us that no two men's nightmares are the same. Mm. So how do we stop these dystopias from coming to fruition? It's time for me to get on my Catholic soapbox. All right, jump, Here we go. jump on there, man. Stepping on. You shouldn't try to separate sex from procreation as Brave New World does or from its relational element as 1984 does, they both take an incomplete view of it. Uh, Before I continue, let me note that C.S. Lewis criticized Orwell's take on how Big Brother dealt with this topic. He thought it was incredibly out of character for them to be such prudes and not allow divorce and remarriage in saying that sex is only for procreation. Mm -hmm. Um, Since... Since the Catholic Church does not allow divorce and remarriage and Big Brother banned religion, it does not make sense for that Big Brother would hold the institution of marriage in such high esteem. That is a good point. And, and do you know the counter argument that has been presented to that? No. Um, I th- it might be alluded to in the book. I can't remember. But it's um, basically the, the rationale was that all of the energy, the pent up energy, be it sexual energy, be it. Uh, aspirations, be it anything that is natural to human beings, needed to be funneled towards either hatred of Goldstein or love of Big Brother or both. So you had to make people in a constant state of nervous excitement, anxiety. And so you did that in theory by restricting their their pleasure-seeking ability with sex. It's a good theory. Good theory. Anyways... Removing the procreative potential from sex creates many negative outcomes, including outrageous promiscuity starting in childhood, superficial lifestyles, and the elimination of parenthood. Some may say that Brave New World is a tract against contraception. 
Maybe that's just what I'm saying. I'm not sure. <laughs> However, Brave New World isn't inevitable. I believe that people naturally yearn for something greater than pleasure, for something greater than themselves, and I believe only God can fill that gap. The citizens in Brave New World must feel like something is missing, even though it's not really covered in the book. I think only Helmholtz feels like something is missing from his life, right? Yeah, with his, his since he's a writer, he, he knows about Shakespeare. And that's yeah. how he and John bond. And, um, yeah, he, he's like, what is the stuff that Shakespeare would be talking about? Because to him, like, a tragedy, a tragedy would not make any sense. No. You know, Hamlet, Macbeth would not make any sense to him. Uh, let's talk about what we can control uh, first as far as preventing things from becoming a dystopia. Uh, we can educate ourselves and try to educate others. We can control that. Uh, we can continue to read and learn and discuss these ideas and try to keep them in the public consciousness so that more and more people may recognize the warning signs. We should do that. Oh, I'm sorry. We should do what we can to embrace tradition. We should unplug and disconnect from the technology as much as we can uh, because it's taking away more of our rights and more of our precious time and our free thought. Uh, Time that is better uh, spent with family, you know, is being taken away by this technology. Spend it with family. Spend it with your church, uh, with your community, or spend it on real personal improvement. Uh, And there may also be hope for what we cannot control. Though power corrupts and always centralizes over time, the inescapable forces of random chance and probability are always at play. Always. The complex tyrannies of both dystopias are not immune to the effects of unforeseen events, coincidence, and catastrophe. It may be that the seemingly absolute control of the party or the harmony and perfection of the world state will only be short-lived and that if they can even get lucky enough to form in the first place. Uh, Without the splintering and the backstabbing and mutiny that always accompanies revolutions. Uh, Even in the Soviet Union, the closest approximation to Oceania and the inspiration for it, like you said earlier, it collapsed only 70-ish years, and uh, that's a blink of an eye in terms of history. We are more likely to have other larger problems crop up well before anything like that becomes a reality for the West, I hope. Now let's go over the takeaways. We need to be aware of the dangers of a big, overreaching government. Tyranny is not an inevitability, uh, even with the big government, but it is always a possibility. We just have to remain vigilant. Control does not uh, have to be exercised directly over us to be effective. Sometimes an indirect approach, such as getting your subjects to love their slavery uh, or give in to their passions, is a larger threat to freedom. The West is not living in either dystopia yet, not completely, so don't exaggerate. However, there are certain aspects of both dystopias that are present in our societies. Following 1984's lead, we have large-scale surveillance and censorship. Just take a look at the NSA and social media as we discussed. Additionally, we are prone to make scapegoats out of groups. For liberals, it could be cis white men or the 1%. (laughs) For conservatives, it could be illegal immigrants or some racial group. Yeah. Um, Following Brave New World's lead, we have widespread prosperity and licentiousness. That's just license, people using their freedom for bad things. Yeah. People are increasingly obsessed with satisfying their base pleasures, and that's the uh, that's the uh, bottom condition for mankind in general. Like it's just what you revert to when you don't have something to bring you up. Yeah. Uh, porn and sexualization is rampant, 
and increasing still, while knowledge of history and knowledge of our lack of knowledge decreases. That's true. Now, my lingering question is, which book do you like better? I, um... And that could be just from enjoying reading it or yeah. or the message. Well, you know? I'll I'll give you some, some behind-the-scenes info on how okay. the podcast was created. Um, this... For this episode, I, I reread 1984. I didn't reread um, Brave New World all the way because I just read it like two years ago. But it had been since like eighth grade since I read 1984. So I wanted to go back through it again, and it, it was very quick when I was, was reading it. I was excited to come home after work. I was like, yeah, let me go read it. Let me let me go back through this. And there's so many really great moments. Um, I would say I like 1984 as a story better uh, it's just cool and kind of gloomy, and I, I just like that, even though it's horrifying. But the literary style I like better in Brave New World. That suits me better. It's more, a little bit more whimsical, and that fits the story. That fits what he's trying to say. And so uh, I enjoyed that aspect of it better. So I think comparing Huxley versus Orwell as far as who's who can write better, in my opinion, I don't know. I think I think Huxley won it on that one. If, if here's Here's something I can ask you. If you, they switched, let's say they just did a challenge. You could bring them back from the dead and you said, hey, you, Huxley, write 1984 and you, Orwell, write Brave New World. Who do you think would do better? I think Huxley's a better writer. You think so? Yeah. I think he's a more engaging author. Orwell's more like, I don't know, less descriptive. and A little more clinical maybe? Maybe. That's yeah. my impression. Uh, I would agree. I would agree. Well, let me ask you this. Now, uh, if either of these two things become reality, when will it happen? Uh, How long will it be? What will it take to make them real? I'd say the 1984 model could happen anytime. It could have happened in the past, and it did. It could happen in the future. Whereas Brave New World requires so much technology and affluence that it could only happen in a rich society where the whole world is rich. Oh, where the whole world is rich. Yeah, I was going to say, because we're rich. I mean... Not us on Sons of Antiquity podcast, but in general, in yeah. America, we are we are wealthy. I don't know what it would take to make them real. Um, like we we kind of outlined it before, what we can can do and what we can prevent in order to make these dystopias not come to fruition. Yeah, I'd say TV is a huge thing that will keep will make it happen. Yeah, maybe that will be a separate rant that I'll do on a little bonus episode sometime. Why I hate TV. Sure. We could do yeah. a bonus on that. Absolutely. Sometime. Uh, one thing that just came to my mind is virtual reality. Oh, that's Ooh. true. I've he didn't write about, about that. that. Yeah, he, he couldn't have even conceived of, like, the, the computers like we have today. I mean, no way at that time. Um, but, yeah, man, virtual reality is – I mean, it's uh, it's here, and it's not like what you see in the movies, but it's getting there. Like, every year that goes by, this stuff is getting more and more realistic, and it's it's kind of scary when you think about it. Combine it with a sex robot, and, man, marriage is just going to be out the window. You're done. Yep. It's going to be Women done. Women getting replaced by sex robots. Sad. They're taking our jobs. <laughs> Sad For real. point. Yeah. Well, that wraps up uh, the main topic. But don't worry. We're still here, and we're going to do the hot take segment right up next. Play that hot take sounder. It's time for the hot takes. Okay, so this begins our hot take segment where we each ask each other to comment 
on a current event that we saw in, in the news somewhere, and the other person does not know what story we're going to ask them about. It's just to get their, their hot take on the situation. All right. So, uh, Evan, tell me what your story is. I want to hear it. Okay. From Fox News last week. Title. New York Times column suggests readers get rid of, quote, obese, depressed, unquote, friends. <laughs> okay. Beginning. A recent column in the New York Times drew outrage after suggesting that amid the pandemic-induced shakeup of American social lives, people should curate their social circles as the nation gradually moves back towards some semblance of normal life. Columnist Kate Murphy suggested such curation would, should weed out people who appear depressed, are obese, or engage in legal vices like smoking or drinking. Those friends, she said, make a person more likely to engage in said vices or to become overweight or depressed themselves. Oh. And just to clarify, this is the woman from the New York Times saying Yeah, this. yeah. Fox News is just talking about this New York Times article. Oh, okay. Indeed, depressed friends make it more like, this is quoting her, uh, the, the New York Times columnist. Mm-hmm. Indeed, depressed friends make it more likely you'll be depressed. Obese friends make it more likely you'll become obese. And friends who smoke or drink a lot make it more likely you'll do the same, Murphy wrote. However, the, co- the column cautioned against simply cutting the line with friends, quote, having a hard time, unquote, and instead suggests suggest the reader be cognizant of how much time they spend with which friends. Now, there was some commentary on this. Oh, okay, yeah. This is where it gets spicy. Feminist author Roxanne Gay. <laughs> what a Perfect name. name incredible. Yes. <laughs> she criticized the Times on Twitter, writing that, quote, this piece really wants you all to stop hanging out with your fat friends so you don't catch the fat, unquote. <laughs> I thought that was pretty funny. Uh, and oh, here's, uh, here's the columnist quote again. Um, another quote from the columnist okay. article. Research shows that only half of our relation- friendships are mutual. That is, only half of those who think, who we think are our friends feel the same way about us. Blame egoism, optimism, or perhaps the fact that social media has turned friend into a verb, she wrote. COVID-19 provides an excuse to shed unsatisfying and unfulfilling relationships while giving people the time and space to strengthen bonds with those who, or with those they truly cared about. Now, it makes a note that this isn't the um, first time that this columnist has said to have less friends. Oh, okay. (laughs) Back in... uh, Back in April, she said the pandemics shrank our social circles. Let's keep it that way. Oh. Um, using similar arguments. That's it. All right. Okay. Good Good selection, by the way. Really good selection. Uh, and get some good quotes in there. Real zingers. I, um, I'm wondering how this even got published in the New York Times. This seems like way uh, too controversial for for what they would post. You know, like it goes against what they normally would put in there. Um, So I'm curious as to why that was even allowed through. But it obviously was. So, um, I mean, I I can kind of see where this woman is coming from. There is some logic to that, that if you have – I've heard it said that you are the average of your closest five friends or something like that. So if you take all the things that make them up – you're probably somewhere in the middle between all of them. And so if you've got friends that are, you know, eating a lot, overweight, they're not going to the gym, they are smoking weed, smoking cigarettes, getting drunk all the time, 
you may be encouraged to through peer pressure, you know, or or whatever. Self improvement. Yeah, yeah. You you may uh, get involved with those things yourself, and those are things that that you um, should try to avoid. And so I think that's some good advice. I think maybe she went a little too overboard by saying you need to cut them out completely. Um, you know, just if they're fatties or if they have, you know, a picture of them with a beer in their hand. I think you should judge on an individual basis. And if someone is doing self-destructive things, um, you need to have a talk with them and say, hey, you know, this is not good. And if they refuse to change their ways and that's just not a lifestyle you want to live and it's bleeding into your friendship, maybe at that point say, I think we need to end this because, you know, you got some things you got to work on. Yeah, but she didn't say to talk to them first. She just said, like, cut them out. This is true. So I would say as maybe good intentions, but you're going out about it the wrong way, lady. Um, but hey, more power to you because you managed to offend fatties in a New York Times piece. That's uh, that's impressive. Like you went out of your way to do it. You didn't just do it accidentally and get called out on social media. Has she been like canceled or anything for this? I haven't heard anything of her being canceled. And they didn't like redact the, or they didn't take back the, the article or anything? I'm not sure. I, I, never, mm. I never Google New York Times because you have to pay to read their articles. Yes, that is a problem. But, yeah. oh, yeah, so you were able to see it because Fox. Because Fox it. commented yeah. on it, yeah. Ah, okay. Yeah, I think um, that's not necessarily as cut and dry. But, uh, you know, I think it's controversial, but that she did. I mean, I think it's in, in general good advice. Yeah, yeah, in general. Of course, it can be taken to extremes, but, yeah, in general, I like it. I agree. All right, now time for your story. You ready? You're going to love it. It's one of your favorite topics. This is from The Guardian. Headline. Pentagon won't allow pride flags to be flown at military bases. Obviously, at the time of this recording, and maybe at the time of you listening, who knows, uh, it is June of 2021. You know what that means. Rainbows. It's the Sacred Heart of Jesus Month. (laughs) Yes, exactly. So let's uh, dig into this short little article here. The Pentagon will not make an exception to allow U.S. military installations to fly rainbow pride flags in June. It said on Friday, that was last Friday, keeping a policy set by Donald Trump that limited the type of flags that could be flown on bases. Uh, Days before the announcement, President Biden said that nearly 1,500 of his federal agency appointees identify as lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender, and queer. In a proclamation marking the start of of Pride Month, uh, not all of those at once, I don't think. (laughs) Maybe some of them. (laughs) I don't know. Uh, he didn't. He didn't clarify on that. But fifteen hundred—that's a lot. You said and. Sorry. Oh, did I say and? Yeah, you didn't say or. But you're good. I was just making fun of you. Go on. No. Uh, well, that's. I was just reading a verbatim from the article. So the Guardian, I guess, is saying that fifteen hundred federal agency appointees are all of those things: <laughs> lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender, and queer. That's impressive. That's that's a resume right there. So in July of uh, 2020, Trump's Pentagon issued a policy saying that uh, only certain flags were allowed on military installations. And um, so some people obviously had some issues with that. And I guess the whole reason behind this was to keep people from displaying the Confederate flag. Mm -hmm. And so now by extension, it's covering all other flags, including the rainbow flag. So they're just allowed to fly like uh, American flags? American flag. Uh, I didn't go... Maybe like the military branches? Yes, I believe so. Or maybe wherever that uh, the state flag in which yeah. that base is. Um, last little quote here. Uh, 
There won't be an exception made this month for the pride flag, the Pentagon spokesman John Kirby said. Um, this, is in, this in no way reflects any lack of respect or admiration for people that are from the LGBTQ plus department, Kirby added. We are proud of them. And a statistic here, a 2015 RAND study found that 5.8% of service members identified as either lesbian, gay, or bisexual. Interesting. What say you? Hmm. I mean, good for him for standing up for it. Just as a matter of principle, to just have related flags, you know, not just random flags that you happen to stand for. And also imagine if they're just flying these rainbow flags out in, you know, a base in Saudi Arabia or any, even, you know, our, our allies who were not friendly to this ideology. It would not reflect well. You, you mean there are people who don't believe that they're in the power of the rainbow? Yeah, believe, I mean, believe it or not, but there are some people like that. You might need to, you know, expand your circle of friends, Dan, Daniel, but... I can't believe it. There, are, You mean to tell me there are actually people who they, don't they, support gays? They live in the very bigoted deep south. Bigots. We hate that place. Yeah, seriously. The south is yeah. oh, awful. Definitely. So oppressive. So oppressive. <laughs> so, but you think that they're uh, they're good for for maintaining uh, resisting public pressure, basically, and saying, "Look, we're going to keep the policy the same. All flags are are we're going to keep them out. We're only going to use yeah. American flag or whatever." Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's also just too controversial. It'll just divide the base. You know, I bet probably half are for and half are against it. So yeah, it, I don't see the point of bringing this overly divisive symbol and trying to force it on all the service members who tend to be more right of center. This is true. Uh, I don't know what, were there any other parts of the article you thought needed um, addressing? I I closed out of it already. Um, <laughs> but I think at the very end, like the one of the last sentences, um, was talking about Biden's push to encourage the American military to protect LGBTQ persons and, you know, like strengthen their uh, fight against LGBTQ uh, persecution. So that's one of his main goals for his term. This reminds me of, I heard that the U.S. Embassy in Vatican City flew the rainbow flag. Really? Yeah, it was pretty controversial. Mm. Yeah, I uh, maybe I should have, uh, if I had known about that, I would have made that the story. That yeah, would have been a, a cool it's crossover. It's similar enough. Um, yeah. You know, I agree with bases not allowing the Confederate flag to be flown. Obviously, you know, it's a direct contradiction to the American flag, you know, the Union. Yes. So, you know, I think it's good to be consistent and just allow related flags, you know, like military flags or national or state flags, you know. Agreed. None of this... LMNOP nonsense. <laughs> say that say that one more time. Get really close to the mic. <laughs> no alphabets. No alphabets. Uh, Want to add anything else before we wrap it up? Uh, no, I don't. All right. Well, that is all for today's show. Join us again next week for even more Ancient Wisdom.